Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, Dr. Tom Thorpe. I'm the editor, producer and host for the programme. The podcast explores why combatants in armed conflict flight and endure and, in some situations, other combatants desert, mutiny or refuse to fight. For more information, go to the website at combatmorale.com. This is episode 8, season 1, and today I speak to the historian and author, Dr George Lapeyre. George wrote a very interesting book on the fragging phenomenon that occurred in American forces during the latter stages of the Vietnam War. George spoke to me about why this phenomenon happened. George, welcome to the Combat Motivation Podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you, how you came to write a book on fragging? Well, uh, growing up, I'd done a lot of reading uh, regarding the Vietnam War. And when I entered the armed forces in the mid-1980s, a lot of the older fellows, uh, my superiors, had served there. Um, I had heard uh, the word fragging, and I sort of knew what it meant. Uh, however, uh, I really didn't know the particulars of it, because up until that time, the authors who had examined the subject, they really hadn't done so adequately, uh, let alone definitively. And so uh, when I was in graduate school, I, I had to find a research topic. I, that's what I went with. So when we talk about fragging, what exactly do we mean? Well, uh, as far as first there's the act and then there's the phenomenon that occurred uh, in Vietnam. Um, fragging uh, refers to when soldiers or Marines uh, used fragmentation hand grenades or other uh, explosive devices like claymore mines and the like. Uh, to either kill, maim, or intimidate uh, other Americans, uh, usually uh, commissioned officers or non-commissioned officers, or uh, South Vietnamese nationals. Uh, in other words, you know, soldiers were using their weapons not on the enemy, but on our own people. Uh, as far as the fragging, what I call in the book, the fragging phenomenon, uh, that's the plethora of incidents that occurred um, from about maybe late 1968 up until the final U.S. withdrawal in early 1973. And what sort of numbers, how many incidents were there? Well, um, the Marine Corps uh, estimated, there's in their official history, that there were between uh, 100 and 150 incidents in the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Uh, I did my own research on the subject. I was able to con uh, confirm 94 incidents. And so I agree with their overall estimate. And 15 Marines were killed and over 100 uh, wounded uh, in these cases. As far as the Army, it's a little more difficult. Um, they, had, they compiled uh, fragging statistics during uh, most of the years of the war. But what happened was they counted every incident in which a grenade was used uh, in an unauthorized outside of the mission. And so their, their incidents include suicides, they include accidents, they include uh, in, fellows who were just, you know, they're walking along and the, the grade just uh, hitched onto something and, and detonated. And so these incidents weren't felonious in nature, and yet they were counted as fragging. That's why in a lot of books, when they reproduce fragging statistics, uh, the impression that all these men were murdered by other soldiers is false because they're including suicides and acts and the like. Um, I found that within the Army, uh, it might be from 600 to 800 incidents, um, and about 57 of the U.S. Army were killed. So you count 57 soldiers and uh, 15 Marines total uh, killed. And who actually perpetrated these crimes, and why did they perpetrate them? Well, um, I can only go by uh, individuals who were convicted by court-martial of these cases. They were convicted either of murder, attempted murder, or aggravated assault. 
Uh, I found 71 cases of this, 54 soldiers and 17 Marines uh, who've been convicted of fragging in Vietnam. Um, as far as who they were, um, I found that most of them were not draftees or mostly volunteers. Uh, they were men who had volunteered for military service at very young ages. Uh, usually in, in, the, in the United States, the youngest uh, you could volunteer is 17 with parental consent. Uh, and I noticed that a lot of these guys weren't older draftees who, you know, went in in their early 20s and resigned themselves to two years of service. These men were uh, individuals who enlisted voluntarily at 17 or 18. And they did so not so much out of patriotism, uh, but in order to escape from uh, situations at home that they're unable to resolve. And, what, and what, sort of, what sort of situations would those be? I wonder if you could give us an example of an individual who was court-martialed and, and the crime that he, he perpetrated. Well, um, the one I, I uh, focused on was uh, probably the, the incident that garners the most attention uh, within the Marine Corps, and that's the murder of Lieutenant Roweller in April of 1969. Uh, the perpetrator in that case was Reginald Floyd Smith. Uh, he was a high school dropout uh, from Chicago. Uh, he was from a, a inner city neighborhood in, in that city. And uh, I think just after he left school, I, I just think that he really didn't have any direction and joined the, he joined, turned out he joined the Marines right during the Tet Offensive in February of 1968. So there was little doubt that once he joined, he was going to wind up in the infantry in Vietnam. And that's where he found himself. And as far as uh, what happened to him, he started out a little different from anybody else. But I think once Operation Dewey Canyon began, uh, he didn't want to have any more part of it. And that's when he gave himself a self-inflicted wound. And when his company commander uh, called him on it, when he confronted him about it, that's when this dispute began and it ended in a murder. And what, um, what, what sort of what was his defense for, for committing this crime? And because it just seemed, it seems very odd that, you know, there's no apparent fraggings from 1965, maybe up to about 1968, but it's from 1968 through 72. The fraggings rise True. exponentially. Why is this pattern coming? And what, do, what did the perpetrators say was their motivation for carrying out these crimes? Well, uh, during the early years of the American involvement in Vietnam, uh, morale and discipline in the troops was excellent. Uh, I found uh, one statistic that said the court-martial rate in Vietnam uh, in 1965 was 2.03% per 1,000 men. And I think that's as good as anybody's ever been. Um, in any case, during those early years, uh, it just, you know, there was no racial tension. Uh, we were fighting this war. It didn't seem really much different from the Korean War, honestly. Uh, it's just in 1968, within a week of each other, there were two pivotal incidents that seemed to change things. Uh, first was President Johnson's uh, television speech in which he announced that there would be a bombing halt, uh, that there would be negotiations to end the war. And I think most surprisingly at the time, uh, he announced that he would not run for re-election. Then on April 4th, 1968, of course, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis. And that's what set off uh, a lot of racial tension in Vietnam. There were a number of fragging incidents and acts of violence in the days following King's assassination. Um, you know, Vietnam is one day ahead of the United States in the international dateline. And when King's murder was announced, uh, you could follow the serious incident reports of how many cases there were. And then uh, after that, you have a there was a stockade riot uh, that summer at Long Bin and a murder there. And it was after that, racial violence in Vietnam was off and running. So I think the Army and Marine Corps as institutions themselves I think there's also the problem is that Vietnam was a very unpopular war. Uh, it was a limited war. Our national security uh, at home was not directly 
uh, at stake. Uh, but we were fighting, you know, fighting communism in a place that few had heard of. Once the word was announced that we'd be withdrawing, uh, I think a lot of people saw less impetus to head over there. And as a result, uh, the military had to lower uh, enlistment standards. Uh, it expanded classes at the military academies and OCS. And I had one Marine tell me that it was his belief that uh, in the recruiting offices, they would accept anybody who would crawl in under their own power. So you had uh, lower enlistment rates, uh, enlistment standards, and that resulted in uh, lower mission performance and morale problems such as fragging. And did the problems that the Army and Marine Corps face reflect the um, domestic tensions in the, in the United States? I'm thinking about some of the, the problems around uh, race riots, civil rights movement and things like that. Uh, well, the civil rights movement began much earlier. And in you know, the early 60s, uh, there was no real uh, race problem in the U.S. military. Uh, this has more to do with, I think, with the rise of black power than anything else, which comes in the, later in the 60s. And, of course, King's assassination. But also, I think something, and this was, this was reflected in youth around the West and in Japan, uh, I think you had sort of a youth rebellion in the 1960s, and that manifested itself in the ranks as a, a rebellion against authority. And also, uh, when you look at the, the Marine Corps and the Army in Vietnam during the later years, you had a lot of men who were serving second and even third involuntary tours in Vietnam. Um, the senior NCO Corps was uh, spent, a lot of men who, were, who weren't killed or wounded left the service. And so men of very young ages were promoted to leadership position. And some of them could handle it, some of them couldn't. Uh, I had one murder victim uh, in the Marine Corps uh, who was a 20-year-old platoon sergeant. So at 20 years old, basically, he's in charge of 40 men. And uh, that's very young. I mean, my... <laughs> My platoon sergeant when I was in the army was about my dad's age. So it just goes to show you what a, an effect it had on the, the Marine Corps as an institution. And what, what do you think the fragging phenomenon uh, represented in terms of morale and motivation for the U.S. Army in Vietnam in the later part of the, the conflict? It's, it's strange. Uh, I, you know, the, the morale problems to begin with, you know, the withdrawal and racial tension and stuff. What that resulted in was uh, one, you, know, you might have lowered mission performance. Uh, you have more people, more soldiers making mistakes in the field and things. I described several of them in the book. Um, but yeah, at the same time, uh, oddly enough, there were incident, there were units that performed well. Uh, it's strange. I mean, I mentioned Lieutenant Rollo's murder. Uh, there were a lot of cases of fragging in the Third Marine Division early in 1969. And yet, when the division went to the field uh, during operations like Dewey Canyon and Apache Snow, it actually performed well. But usually, in these cases, when morale is low and there's little motivation, you know, what you'll see is uh, lowered uh, operational performance, uh, an increase in mistakes, and more uh, acts of violence or acts of indiscipline in rear areas. And were the, were the fracking incidents mainly um, reported in rear echelons of supply units rather than frontline combat units? Nearly all of them. Um, what I found was a lot of these uh, offenders who uh, uh, were involved in these convicted of fragging uh, offenses uh, they were usually in rear area. Um, that's one of the myths of the fragging phenomena. I think there are two, uh, really, that one finds a lot in Vietnam literature. Uh, one is, is that uh, a typical fragging incident was when uh, an officer, uh, like a platoon leader or a company commander, was either incompetent, uh, like couldn't read a map, or was overaggressive in his you know, operations with the enemy. And these unwilling draftees didn't want to fight, and so they would throw a grenade at him. 
most of the fragging incidents uh, did not fit that pattern. Most of them occurred in rear areas. They involved uh, disputes that were uh, that were had nothing to do with the combat mission. The second uh, myth uh, was that usually and when a, a soldier threw a grenade at someone, that the, the victim was killed. Uh, most often, the victim was not killed. That's why the number of fatalities is, is rather low when you look at the total number of incidents. So uh, I, there was a, I wrote down in the book, I recorded um, the units in which uh, most of the perpetrators served, and they, they were not in combat. Yet. I only found a few that were. One was uh, in a, a scout dog platoon in which the platoon sergeant had rearranged uh, the schedule and the dog handlers were going out more. But even with that case, there was some thought it was related to drugs. So it's, it's difficult to say. But I will uh, say that based on what I found, and I've done a lot of research on this topic, that most of them had nothing to do with the combat. And how were they reported back in the States? And what was the impact on the army in, in sort of early to mid-70s after Vietnam had ended? There were, um, when these incidents occurred, there were cases uh, that uh, reporters picked up on. Uh, for example, there was a murder of an officer in October 1969 in the 25th Infantry Division, uh, Lieutenant Revere. That was that was covered in the press. Uh, Lieutenant Roller's murder was covered in the press. But it wasn't until early 1971, rather, uh, that it was reported that this was uh, something that was not. These weren't isolated. This was what would become what I called a fragging, fragging phenomenon. Uh, so that was uh, those first pieces appeared in early 1971. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as how in the, in the press, I mean. Yeah, so sorry, I interrupted you. As far as uh, how they appeared in, in Vietnam literature, uh, that came later. Uh, it seems that the, um, the Vietnam War, it just like a lot of its literature, has sundered into, into two hostile camps. On one side, you have uh, the official military sources, the official Army and Marine Corps histories of the war, and those books written by retired uh, career officers. Uh, they uh, tend to uh, cast the aspersion that this, these were just a few bad apples, and that by and large, uh, the military was uh, unaffected by it. You know, they said, well, we had some problems, but it was nothing we couldn't face. Uh, this, I, I, I tend to disagree with because I think that there was no other war that had this large number of incidents in which uh, uh, Americans were trying to kill their superiors. On the other side, you have uh, the sources that seem to come from the political left, uh, these are people who are in the anti-war movement or uh, soldiers who came to adopt anti-war views. Uh, they, t- they tend to anoint fraggers and deserters and uh, people who disobeyed uh, orders to, to go to Vietnam and whatnot. Uh, they tend to put them all together and uh, christen them as revolutionary. Uh, in some sources, they make it sound like the army had been so radicalized uh, in Vietnam, that they were, you know, just biding their time until they could return home and storm the Winter Palace. Um, this, I don't agree with either, because when one looks at the perpetrators of fragging incidents, these were decidedly non-political individuals. So I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. I think what we need is, and I wrote this in the book, is we need something, to, we need sources that explain uh, why so many incidents occurred in Vietnam and why uh, these incidents, uh, these men who committed these incidents acted out in this way while the vast majority of their peers did not. So what was the impact of fracking on sort of inter-rank relationships in terms of officer men, NCO men? I found two patterns. Uh, There was one incident in which uh, a person uh, threatened uh, the company commander. Uh, As it turns out, uh, the company commander, uh, his name was Krulak. (laughs) Uh, He threatened the guy 
and grabbed him by the, the scruff of the neck. Uh, interestingly, that man later became the commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, on another case in which a captain was murdered in an artillery battery in the Maricopa, I had one of the military policemen who was on site that I interviewed. Uh, he told me that the, a platoon leader coming into the unit was quite nervous and saying, you know, what do I do? And he basically said, told them, you know, hey, don't, don't, mess, don't piss off your troops. So I think it varies. I, I think, you know, not every officer is the same. Some might have been intimidated by it and it resulted in them not enforcing discipline. Others were, uh, you know, said, hey, I'm going to face this challenge head on and I'm going to face these people down. I'm going to go nose to nose with them. So it varied from officer to officer, I would say. And how did the army try and prevent frackings from happening? The, uh, the Marine Corps started by adopting something called Operation Freeze. And what Operation Freeze meant was that once an act of violence occurred in a unit, everything in that unit stopped. Everything froze. In other words, nobody goes on leave. Nobody goes home if they're supposed to return to the United States. Everything stops. Uh, the men are called out into formation uh, and told to just sit there until uh, the investigators arrived and they would start questioning everyone. And it would just that would go on in the unit until a perpetrator was identified. Uh, in the army, uh, they did they had similar plans on a maybe a divisional level. Uh, but in 1971, uh, they had a grenade moratorium. They had a, a, a thing where they had all grenades were not issued to troops in Vietnam starting at a certain date in mid-1971. They stopped issuing grenades. Then within each unit, they would have a shakedown inspection in which they would find the contraband items that the troops might have, whether it's unauthorized weapons like grenades or drugs or whatnot. And then after that, they would have it where you, had a, you would issue grenades to someone, not so much where a person would go to an ammunition bunker or to an ASP and pick up weapons, but it would be issued to them uh, with a hand receipt. They'd have to sign for each grenade and then be able to account for them at a, at a certain future time. And then, of course, they'd have to uh, turn them in when their tour is in. And how, how were these perpetrators actually uh, dealt with by the military justice authorities? Were they prosecuted and were they punished? Yes, they were. Uh, each uh, uh, person who was charged with either murder, attempted murder, or aggravated assault was tried by a uh, court-martial, usually a general court-martial, which is the most serious. Uh, uh, the, the sentences ranged from uh, a few months in prison uh, to life. Uh, however, uh, and this kind of followed uh, what was going on in the civil justice system in the United States during the 1970s, uh, those soldiers who were sentenced to life in prison, uh, they didn't come anywhere close to serving uh, that, that amount of time. Uh, virtually all of them were, had been released by the end of the 1970s. There was one man who had killed a warrant officer with a Claymore mine. He was, uh, he was released on parole and then returned to prison a number of times. Um, the exact reason for that, I don't know. I presume that he probably uh, was positive on a urinalysis for drug use. Uh, but nonetheless, he didn't leave prison until 1990, or he wasn't released from his sentence until then. Uh, but usually, and I, I got some statistics in the book about this, um, most of them didn't even serve a fraction of their time. And what's the fracking phenomenon reported in other uh, nations, armies, or military forces in Vietnam? I'm thinking about the Australians or the South Vietnamese. Uh, well, um, what I did was, I mean, when I was writing this book, obviously, when I'm uh, writing and coming up with social theory there, um, I, could, I could find all kinds of neat documents. I could quote or cite the best uh, secondary sources. But at the end of the day, I think a historian is a social scientist. And it's my job, if I come up with a type or if I come up with a model or something or a theory, I have to test it. 
And so in the book, what I did was I provided a comparative analysis with the Australian forces, with one Australian task. And uh, they served in Vietnam. Uh, it was a brigade strength task force uh, that fought in the area around uh, their forward area was Nui Dat. And uh, I found that within the Australian forces, uh, a lot of similarities between what happened with them and with the Americans. Uh, for example, when the war began, there was a, a drastic expansion of the Australian Army, just as there was the U.S. forces. So it was necessary to promote people uh, to ranks that they might not have had enough experience uh, to uh, serve in. Uh, and then you see lowered mission performance, uh, mistakes in the field, and suddenly you have uh, uh, instances of violence in rear areas. Uh, as far as drug use, uh, which was one of the factors that led to the American incidents. Uh, I found that uh, Australian soldiers, there were uh, those who used marijuana during the war, but I did not find a large number of you who used heroin, as was the case with the American. Also, uh, as far as racial incidents, the Australian Army, um, they, were, they considered drafting Aboriginal men into the forces, um, but the, the matter was never resolved. Uh, some Native men did volunteer, but for all intents and purposes, Australia sent a white army to Vietnam. And so racial tension wasn't something they had to do. But nonetheless, they did have about 11 fragging incidents. And that's one must consider that's within a brigade size element. Uh, and two officers killed, uh, Lieutenant Burst and Lieutenant Convery. And looking back on this phenomenon, how can armies prevent this from happening again? Uh, well, it's uh, unique. Uh, Vietnam was a, a sort of a unique situation, which you had political and social factors that led to. Um, you know, when, when the president says we're going to negotiate the end of the war, and uh, then all of a sudden you have uh, an instant assassination of Martin Luther King a few days later, uh, I think that's irrespective of what the army does with its personnel policy. I think you're going to have trouble. Uh, however, uh, there were two things that I saw in anti-fragging orders, both in the Army and in the Marine Corps, that are worthy of further consideration. First, uh, in the Army, uh, General McCaffrey, uh, he sort of exhorted uh, junior officers and NCOs to communicate with their men. In other words, if someone had a problem, uh, some sort of personal issue back home or uh, a budding problem with a, with a superior, uh, they had to have a situation where the soldier had, could, uh, had access to an open door where he could speak to someone about it and resolve it before it got to a violent state. Uh, and second, uh, is, is this the better communication? Uh, there was one, one uh, example that was provided in the Marines. Uh, I believe it was General Simmons. Uh, he said, hey, if you see a budding problem uh, within a unit between an enlisted man and NCO or an enlisted man and officer, uh, it might not be a bad idea to transfer one of them without prejudice uh, to another unit, maybe within the same battalion. And you, you kind of diffuse it before it gets to a violent state. There are incidents. I mean, you have whenever a military force is overseas and all of a sudden, you know, a married soldier receives a Dear John letter. It's tough for him to deal with it when he's thousands of miles away and he has a loaded weapon. Uh, that, I think, is a problem for any arm. I, I, with that one, with a counselor or with a Red Cross and emergency leave, uh, that might be the only way to do it. But problems like that are tough when an army goes overseas. I think in some ways, some of it is inevitable. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work? Well, um, as far as the Vietnam, the fragging books uh, was published uh, just over 10 years ago. Um, there are other sources. For example, uh, Colonel Solis wrote uh, the history of Marine Corps justice in the war. That covers uh, several fragging incidents. Uh, the army right now is completing its, uh, its Vietnam book series. Uh, it's covered all the years up until, uh, I believe, into early 1969. Uh, the Vietnamization volume 
I don't think that's been released. Uh, right now I'm working on, uh, I've, I've changed focus from violence against superiors to desertion. And that's the direction I'm researching now. George, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure.